all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family. From mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions, whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is the program where you can call in with any kind of medical question that you might have. Maybe that's a new symptom that you have or uh, something that just sort of popped up uh, out of the blue if you want answers to that. Maybe a new medication that has some side effects. Uh, you might want to give us a call today. Hope everybody's getting ready for the holidays, and I hope you don't have to work. We do have a lot of people working in the hospital right now, and uh, we'll be through the weekend. But if you do have some time to take off, I would encourage you to do that. Holidays can be tough, though, for a lot of people. That's something to keep in mind, uh, whether you've had a loss in your family or maybe some family strain. Uh, those uh, Thinking about what's going to happen during those times can sometimes be yeah, uh, it causes increased anxiety in a lot of people. So, but we do want you to look for ways that you can reconnect with people, that you can relax a little bit and disconnect from some of the usual things. And uh, thankfulness, you know, this is one of the best holidays because it really forces us to look at what we have to be thankful for. And lots of research in that area that if you just look for the ways to be thankful. Um, that actually increases your uh, well-being about how you feel about yourself. So lots of data on that. I also want to encourage you, if you can't call in, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to our first caller of the hour. That's David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. I'd like to ask a question about medical marijuana and uh, drug tests. Okay. Okay. Unfortunately, a few years back, I had a death in the family, and uh, 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 when they did the uh, fatal fatality accident, they found marijuana in the system anyway. Uh, they didn't want to pay anything because they assumed that they technically, I've got the, the legal technical description, they essentially said he was driving them the influence. Right. So they didn't want to, so anyway, so ended up the family didn't get, uh, it was a wrongful death type situation and was in neglect, and uh because of medical, because of, because of when they did the, the uh, you know the, the drug test on him, they didn't find any alcohol, but they found marijuana in the system. So they didn't want to. They said that the what do you call it the, the burden of proof or culpability or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, driving under the influence or whatnot. So my question to you is on this medical medical marijuana. They keep talking about medical marijuana, and I live in North Mississippi area, and South Haven has got the zoning area. 
they haven't got it in yet, but they've approved the areas where they can uh, put up dispensers and whatnot. If you decide to go that route, how long does it stay in your system, and what is the, the legal, or if you know the legal description of driving under the influence on the marijuana? How do they test for marijuana? That's why I must my question. Sure. Now, how long does it stay in your system? Right. Yeah, those are great questions. And, you know, when we talk about uh, drug testing for various things that you could be impaired, you know, that's really what we're looking for is, can you have impairment with that? And there's lots of things out there that can cause impairment. It's not just marijuana. It's not, uh, you know, recreational drugs that you would take. There's a lot of prescription drugs that will do that, too. A lot of uh, benzodiazepines. Those are things that can be used to treat anxiety or um, or uh, insomnia. Those can stay in your system. And if you drive, most of those have, you know, sort of a, a warning on the label or that's accompanying that uh, prescription that says, hey, if you're driving a car or heavy machinery, you may not want to do that while you're taking this medication. So when we talk about a situation where you would be have that tested, it is important to realize the different ways and the different substances of how long they would be in your system. And some of them are real quick, like alcohol, that's pretty predictable. Um, you know, within a couple of hours uh, after that, it's rapidly metabolized by the body and you really can't pick it up, you know, after a certain amount of time. It is dependent upon the amount of alcohol. So the more you drink, the longer it stays in your system, the longer it takes for you to, to uh, process that and get that out. Um, but marijuana is one of those that it's a really what we call fat soluble, which just means it um, it likes to hang out within fat cells. And uh, that can be something that shows up for a long time. Now, we don't take a fat cell, um, and then we analyze that. So whether you're talking about either a blood test or a urine test, it's just that that marijuana or the THC in there, uh, same kind of thing with CBD oil, too. If it has an appreciable amount of THC, which is what they're really looking for, that's the active chemical that can cause impairment uh, in in marijuana, whether that's medical marijuana or, or marijuana that you ingest or smoke. So that's what they're going to be testing. And because it likes to hang out in fat cells and sort of store there for long periods of time, it takes a while for the body to release that. There's not really a reliable way with the testing to say that, okay, it's a certain level. You smoked this much or you took this much of marijuana two days ago. It's just not that specific, but it can hang around for sometimes weeks. So I've seen a couple of situations where somebody went and to a place in the United States where they could uh, use uh, recreational marijuana, and they did that, and then they came back, and two weeks later, they had a drug screen for employment and tested positive for it. And so it, it can hang out for long periods of time. Now, I'm not going to speculate. There's been a lot of talk in the, from the, in the legal community, and I've talked to some of our legal counsel at UMMC about this, too, about how are they going to interpret that? Because now we're going to have it's going to be legal to do that. Um, but that doesn't um, negate the responsibility of when you're legally taking that. In other words, if you've got a medical a card that's been approved by a physician or a nurse practitioner that says that you would qualify, you go to a dispensary, they dispense the marijuana, you take it. If something happens, like a car wreck, for instance, like, like you brought up, um, that there is a suspicion of impairment, 
that could still play into that. So, and we don't know enough about it. We're not far enough into that. There's certainly other states that have done that to know what the impact of that's going to be. So just because you have that card doesn't necessarily mean that that's not going to come into place in the same way that if you were prescribed a muscle relaxer, for instance, like Scalaxin or Robaxin, and you have a car wreck and they do some drug testing and they show that that's in your system, then it doesn't matter if it was prescribed by a physician. You're still culpable for that uh, potential impairment. So uh, two, two sort of separate things. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to speculate on that, you know, on the legal implications. But I have heard lots of discussion about how that's going to play into things a little bit more and probably get into how you're taking it. But again, you can't tease that out in a drug test. Now, you can certainly do more things to test for marijuana, like fingernails or hair. Um, so all of those things can, you know, sort of play into that. But I uh, hope that answers your question there, David. I thank you. All right. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. If you have a question about anything, it doesn't have to be about medical marijuana. It can be about anything that's related to your health or the health of somebody near and dear to you. You can reach us by podcast. Just go to your favorite podcasting app and search for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. And you can access that in uh, whatever time is most convenient for you. So we mentioned Thanksgiving tomorrow and lots of things that are going to be consumed at Thanksgiving. So most people in getting together, there's uh, all kinds of different family traditions and foods. And one of those that we, uh, I can't remember, I probably should have looked this up, but it is amazing the amount of turkey that is ingested during uh, Thanksgiving. I think it's in the, you know, upwards of the, uh, in hundreds of millions of turkeys that are consumed, um, which is amazing when you think about the industry and sort of how those are produced. But there's a, there's a, you know, a lot of research that's been done and what effects does that have on you, particularly after you eat it? And a lot of people will say, well, you know, turkey makes you sleepy if you eat that. And one of the chemicals in there that has been looked at and, and studied is uh, tryptophan, or specifically L-tryptophan. And tryptophan is one of the amino acids that is in, uh, in turkey. It's also in other foods, too. But it's interesting, over the years, over about the last 20 years or so, they've been around 40 or 50 studies that actually looked at that. And they looked at it. Most of them have been more of people after they ingest a certain amount of L-tryptophan, either within turkey or given that chemical, that uh, amino acid, it will uh, then they'll study and say, okay, how long did it take you to get to sleep? How long did it, uh, you know, did it last? Did you have any uh, awakefulness during the night? And in doses greater than one gram, and I don't have any idea knowing how much turkey that is, probably here in the South, that's a good portion of turkey that we normally eat because we tend to to really, I don't know about you, but I like a lot of turkey. Um, So that produces both an increase in the rated satisfaction of sleep. So somebody would say, okay, I ate that turkey. I felt better the next morning, really got some good sleep. Um, and then a, a decrease in sleep, what's called sleep latency. So that's the time to get to sleep. That's when you're lying there and you're like, hey, I'm sleepy. How long does it take when you lay down to the time that you g- actually go to sleep? So it decreased at that time. So it makes you more sleepy quickly, uh, again, in, in amounts that are greater than one gram which of L-tryptophan. So um, I'll try to look that up a little bit more. But um, there does have, seem to be some evidence. But also... 
when you eat anything, you can be sleepy. A lot of people will say, you know, after I ate a big meal, I really feel sleepy. And there's several reasons for that, too. Some of it has to do with the consistency of what you eat. Some foods will keep you up. They have a stimulant effect. Certainly anything with caffeine in it will do that. There's some other foods that are stimulants, too, that will do that. But uh, just the fact of eating a big meal, it sort of shunts blood to your gut because you have to have increased blood supply there, and you need that to transfer all those nutrients to your bloodstream. Um, That in and of itself can cause you to pull blood away from other places like your brain, and you feel a little bit sleepy when that happens. So very common to feel that way after you eat, if you eat a big meal, no matter when it is, whether that's at lunch or uh, at dinner, uh, certainly those are some of the effects that you can have. Don't know about cranberries or uh, sweet potato casserole or pecan pie is one that I'm always uh, looking forward to. But uh, I would suspect that the more you eat like that and you uh, it sort of produces those effects where we need to sort of lay down and uh, digest all the things that we ate. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering all kinds of questions and doing a little bit of turkey research, uh, specifically what is the amount of uh, tryptophan in turkeys and how many turkeys do we consume. So I think our uh, really handy with numbers uh, producer Kevin Farrell uh, said 46 million turkeys a year. I think that's what the numbers are. So that's a lot of turkeys. And then... If you look at a serving size, now, again, in the South, we tend to, you know, we get a little crazy with serving sizes. I don't know anybody that thinks about serving sizes on Thanksgiving Day, but a serving size of turkey would be about three ounces. That's not a whole lot of turkey, Um, but that's about 300 milligrams of L-tryptophan in that. We said a gram is uh, sort of what you would need, so uh, Pretty good hefty servings of turkey to get up to that one gram portion, but I do not doubt that there are people out there, and some of them, I don't want to incriminate myself in that, but some of the, sometimes uh, I, I have been known to do that. Another time is at the fair when they have those big, huge turkey legs that are just really good. <laughs> I'm salivating over here now. If you have a question about any kind of healthcare related issue that you might have, you can always email us. You can send those emails to remedy at mpbonline.org. We do try to um, read those uh, and reply to those emails uh, as quickly as we can. Um, but then we also uh, share those if you give us permission to do that. Uh, one of the recent emails we had, uh, this is from a listener, it says, um, please advise what could be the cause of dark spots on my husband's lower leg. He said some of the spots do sting occasionally, and sometimes there's a small pain that's related with them. He's on blood pressure medication, amlodipine, and did notice the change when he started taking another kind of blood pressure medication. But amlodipine is the only one that keeps his blood pressure normal. We're going to catch 22 of not knowing what to do. Please advise. Um, Yeah, so dark spots on lower extremities could be a number of things. Of course, radio is not the best modality to do that or email uh, without having pictures. But one of the most common things is something called venous stasis uh, disease of the lower extremities. So all of us have surface veins uh, that are on our lower extremities, certainly all over your body. Over time, those uh, veins, the way that they get blood back up to the heart, the normal way that they work is they have valves in them. So when you apply pressure to them, and that's usually with movement of the muscles that surround them, it pushes all that blood back up towards the heart. So they don't have a lot of their low-pressure system 
uh, uh, blood vessels. They're not like the arteries, which are higher. So what happens over time is those valves sort of wear out, and that's when people get varicose veins. They get more pooling in the lower extremities. You can have swelling that's related with that, too. And then, of course, there's multiple other things that can cause swelling. Uh, There are some more serious things like heart failure or liver failure that can do that. But also, uh, medications can do that, too. Amlodipine is a wonderful blood pressure medication. It uh, is very effective. Uh, the uh, generic main name for that is, amlod- uh, is uh, uh, amlodipine. The um, uh, brand name is Norvask is another one that you may be familiar with. But it's a calcium channel blocker, and it sort of relaxes blood vessels. So it helps to lower that pressure by directly relaxing the muscular layer around those. One of the other side effects, though, is you get sometimes you get uh, swelling in your lower extremities. And if it if that swelling is there and it's combined with those veins that are a little bit leaky or they, they don't work as well because of the valves aren't, aren't working, then you can get pooling of that blood. And when blood pools for a long time, the things that sort of hold on to oxygen, uh, that molecule and one of those called hemosiderin, That comes out and it gets uh, deposited right underneath the skin. And it has sort of a brownish rust color because of of the iron that's in that. And that really doesn't go away very well. So that's probably what by what the description was is what these brown spots are. In and of itself, it doesn't cause any problems. There are some things to do um, that would not uh, make you change your blood pressure medication to something else, although there might be some other alternatives that work just as well. But um, just elevating the legs, making sure you're not eating a whole lot of salt because that can that certainly can increase the swelling in the lower extremities. Movement does help because it's moving those muscles to help pump that uh, that uh, venous blood back to the heart. And then sometimes some compression hose or stockings. These aren't like the regular compression hose, but uh, you know men. Not big fans of wearing that, but they do work, um, and they particularly work the higher they are. So if they go up to the knee or even over the knee, it works even better. A medical supply store is a good place to to uh, to look for those. And if you do that long enough, sometimes even the spots can go away. But that sounds like what it is to me. Honestly, any any um, you know either dermatologist or primary care physician or nurse practitioner who's been around you know looking at, at older legs for a while can look at that and say, yeah, that's what it is. Um, and again, it's not in and of itself. It's it's more associated with aging than anything else. But it can be uh, exacerbated, made a little bit worse if you have things that are making the swelling. Uh, uh, be there for a longer period of time. So that's my stab at that. Venous stasis disease, um, and that's hemosiderin, or that's the changes, that sort of browning. It's almost, sometimes it can be thickened, too. It can almost what we call sort of a woody texture to it. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, uh, answering your questions, whether they be via email or calls, and uh, also tackling some common things that we would be thinking about uh, that are health-related during this time of year. Email us, email remedy at mpbonline.org. What are some other things to think about, you know, as you have family over or if you're traveling? Certainly making sure that you travel safely can keep your health uh, good. We know that uh, because people travel long distances sometimes in cars and other transportation modes, you might uh, be more prone to have uh, some accidents along the way. But also 
particularly since we know now that there is some data to support that sleepiness, uh, make sure you're not driving sleepy too. You might need to take something like a little bit of caffeine to keep you awake, and that's certainly effective um, if you have a long distance to go or drive. Or pick your times to do that. Um, Don't want anybody getting hurt out there on holidays. What about taking extra medication? So I had a patient that came in earlier this week and asked, uh, could they preemptively take something because they know that during big holidays like this, when you eat maybe a little bit off your diet, if you have hypertension or have diabetes or a couple other things, is there anything to do about increasing your medications during that time to control some of the side effects like lower extremity swelling or maybe your blood sugar going up? And generally speaking, you you can do that. Um, from the swelling standpoint, it's not really advised because a lot of the same medications we use, like diuretics, that's just a big class of medications that get fluid off of your lower extremities. Um, it, those can decrease your blood pressure as well, and it may be decreased a little bit too low. So taking those during or taking an extra dose of them during this time, unless your physician specifically has said, yes, that's okay, probably wouldn't do that. Now, diabetes is one that we oftentimes, depending on the diabetic medication, sometimes if you know you're going to eat more, then you might um, you might can adjust that. But some of the, of the way that the medications work, that's not really going to be a good idea for some of them. If you're taking insulin, Uh, Check with your physician about that just to make sure that that's okay, depending on what your blood sugar is. Always a good uh, idea to to adjust that based on what you're eating, your activity level, and what your blood sugar is. But again, that's something you want to discuss with your physician or whoever's following you for diabetes and not uh, take that into your own hands unless you've been given uh, some training on how to do that. But you can, you know, sort of anticipate those kinds of things. Um, you know, a lot of people, if they get out and actually pick up a sport, I do see this a good bit in my patients who are diabetic and, and have high blood pressure. Um, if they are a lot more active, if they're, you know, uh, picked up a lot of things that they're, they've been doing from a physical activity standpoint, oftentimes they can come off of medications. But again, you want to talk to your physician about that just to make sure that you're not doing something that's um, because they may have you on that medication for multiple reasons. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, answering your questions, whether they be from email or calls about any kind of health care issue that you might be undergoing right now. Or we've also been talk, uh, tackling some emails. So if you'd like to email us, maybe you can't call right now and you want to email us, not just right now, but maybe later, you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. So, uh, you know, lots of common things that are out there uh, during the holiday season and, um, you know, a lot of people making transitions during this time of year, too, to do more things. We were just talking about increase in activity levels. You know, what about if you're doing something like an exercise and you have some weird things happen like popping? Popping of joints is one of those common complaints and people will say, look, I started doing something and I've got a popping in my elbow or my knee or my shoulder. What is that? Um, So if it's not causing any pain and you don't have an unstable joint, if that joint's not locking up or if it's not going, uh, if it's not uh, unstable or slipping or anything like that, 
then it's probably a, a normal phenomenon. And it can be a couple of different things. Sometimes there's little ligaments that can slide over parts of that joint. doesn't cause any kind of problem. It's sort of the way the joint is um, is designed. Or sometimes it can actually be the fluid that's in that joint that, uh, depending on how you uh, how you move can uh, contribute to the sound as well. So have, have done a, a fair amount of research on that. But the general thing is if you feel the pop, but it's not causing any pain and you don't have an unstable joint, probably nothing to worry about. But common, I, I can't walk up or uh, sneak up on anybody these days with five, because of my knees and everything else popping. I, actually, it's always been that way. Let's go to Anna from Oxford. Good morning, Anna. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, I, it's unusual. I've got Wednesday off, so I'm, you know, usually I'm at exercise class. Um, but uh, a while ago, you said that adding metformin to um, insulin or Atlantis, which is what I take, uh, might be some uh, an answer because my blood sugar for the last, oh, I'd say two and a half years since since having the injection for COVID, uh, my blood sugar was all over the place. I mean, it was just it was ridiculous, mm-hmm. and um, and then I heard you say that maybe to someone else, maybe adding metformin, and I have to agree, it has worked. Yeah, yeah. There are there are, you know there's about seven different classes of medications that can be used to treat diabetes, and sometimes because of you know there's lots of different changes, you can be rocking along just fine with your treatment, and then for whatever reason there's something that affects that. And combining a couple of those things together, I think you mentioned Lantus was the the main yeah, insulin yeah. that you're taking. Yeah. And I, I know take, you. Uh, go ahead. I take, I take about eight. Was it milliliters? Yeah, uh, at night. Yeah. So so the you know Lantus is a long acting insulin. So it is um, an injectable for insulin. You know, pretty much is injectable. So you either have to, ha- to inject it yourself through a device or draw it up. Uh, and then there's some other ways to deliver it continuously. But the advantages of having that that long-acting insulin is it's going to last anywhere from 24 to 36 hours. It's going to be in your system. It's going to cover you for that period after you inject that. Other medications work a little bit differently. Metformin is one that acts at the muscle level and at the liver level to help control blood pressure. So it allows you to... Uh, to move that glucose into your muscles, and then it also helps uh, your liver to give it signals to say, hey, don't produce as much glucose. So combined together, that's a very, you know, that's a that's a regimen that I used, oh, goodness, probably 20, you know, close to 20 years ago and still is a good regimen. Doesn't really have a whole lot of side effects. Certainly if you're taking any type of insulin, you have to, uh, if you you have to eat regularly, you can't stop eating. And if you have like a procedure where you have to fast, or if you get sick with a GI bug, uh, that's that's a reason to you know at least cut back on the dose of that insulin. Metformin actually works pretty well most of the time and doesn't drop your blood sugar too much by itself. Um, but again, combining a couple of different medications like that, and that's not a big dose of the Lantus either. Uh, one of the advantages with combination therapy, whether it's diabetes or hypertension or other uh, medical conditions, is sometimes you can use much smaller doses of those medications and you can avoid some of the side effects of them too. So that yeah, I, that's a great I was, regimen. I was going to say, I also take um, 
blood pressure medication, I guess, and cholesterol medication. Uh-huh, yeah. Do I need to um, adjust those? Because I've only just started taking the metformin. Yeah, usually on the uh, – I'll take those one at a time. So the yeah. – yeah, the the diabetic medications are one that you can adjust much more frequently, and your physician is probably interested in two different things. One is a finger stick glucose, uh, at least a fasting, and maybe even checking on that, you know, two hours after a meal. Um, that's that's useful in, in adjusting that regimen. And then there's a lab test that they get every three months called a hemoglobin A1C that gives you a three-month average, uh, three months in the past, of, uh, you know, what that blood sugar was. So um, now blood pressure, a little bit different. Um, You know, we tend not to, because most blood pressure medications that are prescribed on an outpatient basis are so long acting, it's not really recommended that you mess around with those at different times because you're going to be affecting something that happens at least 24 to 36 hours after that. And we like for that blood pressure to be decreased and and have sort of a smooth effect of it coming down afterwards. Cholesterol medications, usually you don't. Once you get to that that dose that works for you or works for your cardiovascular risk, then you really don't need to to do much there. I have had some patients to say, hey, I've made some major changes to my diet and exercise program. Um, Can I come off of that and then retest my lipids and see what my overall risk of heart attack and stroke is and you know, maybe try to, to cut that out. That's fine uh, because of the way those work. Um, you know, it's not really going to hurt anything. Blood pressure medication, occasionally I've been able to do that too, and diabetic medications. I had one patient in particular that was on about seven medications for high blood pressure, uh, increased cholesterol, and diabetes, and he had some major changes in his diet and in his exercise program. And he was able to come down to about two or three medications. So you can do that. You want to do it in a supervised way so that you're not just going out there with a blood pressure that's super high or blood sugar that's super high. But, um, yeah, I, I, that, those we wouldn't want to adjust quite as much um, because particularly if it's just, you know, one meal or, uh, you know, just a, um, some people will say, well, can I drop my diuretic if I've got a long car ride? And again, you should talk to your physician about that. There may be some individual uh, individuals that can do that um, during that car ride. Um, but generally speaking, those are much longer acting medications that we don't adjust as much. And I must, I must say I'm guilty. I only like to go to the doctor once a year. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, I mean, okay. if, if things are well controlled, um, well, you know, that's... Well, A1C, I found out, was um, it was actually... Like seven point four, so then I'm taking the metformin. Hopefully, it's going to go back down again. I I do exercise, I walk, and all those things, so I, I don't worry about that. Um, it's just that uh, it's so much. It's such a hassle to get to the damn doctor. it's all our fault anna (laughs) yeah it's well it sounds like you're doing everything that you need to be doing to improve your health and uh i love the fact that you're not just taking the medications but you're also doing some other things like the exercise those are all great ways together to uh to improve your health over time so kudos to you for doing that and yeah, I've got you – know, once you get to a to a place where you're, you know, everything's sort of controlled, I've got some patients that have, uh, you know, hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol that I just see once a year because they're doing so well. And I do tell them, 
hey, if something pops up, give me a call. I can always see you sooner. But if all their labs are looking good and their blood pressure is looking fine, a lot of times that's about all you need to see them. Yeah, it's bad enough having to go to the dentist. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Anna. Have a good Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. This is Southern Remedy, Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. You know, we talked about common things that people come to the doctor with. Uh, Ringing in your ears is one that we often get questions about. I had a recent email about that, and uh, we've talked about it from time to time, but it's common enough, I think, uh, you know, repeating it. Some people will say, well, how how common is that? About 15 to 20% of individuals will have ringing in their ears at least some point in their life. Sometimes that is recurrent, it may come and go, or it might be persistent with some people, but uh, very common, those cells that um, the, that are in our inner ear, that are responsible for transmitting those movements of air into sound, they, um, you know, they, they are very sensitive, and there's lots of things that can affect them. Uh, certainly hearing loss uh, can be associated with that ringing in your ears. So if those individual cells, which are sort of almost like hairs at the tips of them, uh, if you think about it that way, if they're bent or broken or damaged in some kind of way, then that's that has the potential to change the way that they perceive sounds and you can have ringing in your ear. If you have a lot of, uh, you know, wax buildup or you've got a blockage in your ear canal, that can sometimes cause ringing in your ears. Head trauma is a common one. If somebody has a wreck in a car, they'll either hear that and it'll go away. Uh, you know, uh, our uh, um, armed forces, if they're uh, exposed to loud uh, noises or explosions, uh, that can certainly cause uh, uh, either intermittent or permanent ringing in your ears. And then head or neck injuries can do the same kind of thing. Uh, and sometimes it can only be in one ear, depending on what the mechanism is. And then there are some medications uh, that have been known to do this. So some of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, certain antibiotics can do that too, cancer drugs. Um, diuretics. Um, so it's a long list of things. So if you're having that, you might want to ask your physician. They're going to hopefully do a thorough review of some of the both exposures and the things that you've had happen to you. And then look at your medication list too to see if that maybe that's what's causing it. Uh, it can be treatable in most cases, uh, but knowing what the cause is is always a good idea. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning talking about all kinds of good stuff related to your health or maybe the holidays and plenty of time to squeeze in a couple more calls. Let's go to Zane from Jackson. Good morning, Zane. Morning. What's your question this morning? I have been taking the medication Lamictal for about four years now, and I recently learned about an FDA warning uh, for uh, heart patients or people with heart problems. Uh, with Lamictal, how concerned should I be uh, with with this warning? Yeah, you know, they had those warnings on medications like either the adverse effects of it, in other words, you know, anything that might go wrong that's a side effect. Sometimes it's in combination with things, or sometimes it's because of uh, a condition that you might have. The biggest thing with Lamictal has been like a, a dangerous rash that you can get that's life-threatening if it's if it's bad enough. It's sort of an allergic-type response to it. Um, but, um, you know, really, as long as your physician is aware of those other things like heart disease, then 
that's you know that's that's probably okay. Now there may be some other things that they want to um, monitor for that. But the biggest thing with Lamictal, and for those of you who don't know what Lamictal is, it's used for a number of things. It's an, actually an anti-seizure medication, so it can be used for seizures. It can also be used for uh, certain uh, behavioral uh, changes. Uh, it can be mo- used for mood stabilization, lots of different different applications for it. Um, sometimes it's used in combination or singly for the, the treatment of various, uh, various uh, mental um, disorders, but... Uh, arrhythmias or abnormal heart rate is one of those things that they at least look for. Now, if you do have heart disease, what your physician may want to do is to get a baseline EKG, make sure that the electrical activity of your heart is okay. If that's okay, then, you know, they may want to sort of weigh that risk of it or maybe even get an EKG after you start taking it. Um, but that's a conversation to have with them. If you do have significant heart disease, to where you have a cardiologist, the cardiologist is also another, you know, another uh, person that probably should know about it. Uh, and certainly, if you already have an irregular heart rate or rhythm, um, again, that might be a discussion to say, hey, do, is this really a good idea that I'm on that? And I love the fact that they have those black box warnings on there, just because it prompts patients to bring those things up that might not have been thought of or discussed uh, beforehand. But if you have any concerns with it, talk to your heart doctor, talk to your main doctor or the doctor who prescribed that. They can get on board. I've had plenty of conversations like this where I wanted to prescribe a medication, but I wasn't sure if the cardiologist or the the kidney doctor, if they, you know, who were also following my patient, if they were all on board, I'll just reach out to them. Um, it's pretty easy to do that. It's not a big deal to just have a discussion between those physicians and say, hey, what are we going to do here? Is this something that we need to take the risk on doing? Is the benefit, does that outweigh it? But that's what I would prompt them to do and, or ask them if they didn't mind talking to each other about it. Okay. Thank you so much, Doc. That was my only question. All right. Thank you, Zane. Have a good Thanksgiving. Hey, what about back pain? So when you eat too much turkey and you go out and play football with your uh, uh, 20-some-odd-year-old sons and you pull a muscle, um, what do you do about that? I see a lot of people after the holidays, and actually I sent out something to some of my colleagues a little earlier. We have what we call ICD-10 codes. So these are are descriptions of medical problems that people can have. There's actually one that's specific, specific now, to being pecked by a turkey. Uh, So, And one of them is like being uh, injured by a football, too. So if you're out there playing a little football in the the, uh, yard with your kids, what do you do for that back pain if you have it or strain a muscle? First thing is do rest it. You certainly want to uh, not push through that too much. Taking something like Tylenol or ibuprofen, if there's not a contraindication based on what your, uh, you know, your uh, current medical condition is, that's always a good idea. And then you can uh, use some good old-fashioned uh, uh, heat uh, or cold uh, heat, for usually with things that happen. Uh, you know, if, if there's a tear uh, in a muscle. Uh, usually cold works a little bit better first off and then heat to get it moving afterwards. And then usually you can have that pain for up to about a week. Um, if it's um, you know much longer than that, that's when you want to contact your physician if there's anything else that you need to do uh, to in, in the meantime. Or 
Um, if it's, uh, you know, if you have certain warning signs, if you lose uh, feeling or uh, certainly if you lost feeling or you had weakness in an extremity, uh, you certainly would want to get that checked out a little bit earlier. But back pain, most of the time, it will resolve itself if you don't continue to overdo it anywhere from about two to six weeks. And six weeks sounds like a long time. I know it it is, but uh, that's not uh, anything to sort of jump on if for um if you're, uh, you know, wanting some uh, uh, medication for that. Pain medication uh, beyond what I mentioned for Tylenol or ibuprofen doesn't really help too much. Now, um, it can cause a lot of problems. We've sort of moved away from that. I think most people are aware of the opioid epidemic that we've had in, in this country. And certainly uh, here in Mississippi, we've had uh, a lot of problems with that, too. So I, I tend to stay away from that in my patients um, that have sort of non-surgical uh, back pain or or a muscle uh, strain. Uh, we mentioned muscle relaxers earlier. That can help, particularly at night. I like to use uh, those in patients that have had the the pain or discomfort um, for longer than about uh, a week. And uh, sometimes that alone can sort of loosen up those muscles so that they heal back. Um, physical therapy, a lot of people will sort of move away from that. And they, they say, you know, I really don't see how that's going to work. That's going to move me around and cause me more pain. It actually has a great, it's a great modality to get you back to functioning and relief of the pain. So uh, please consider that if your physician mentions that as an alternative uh, to uh, medication or something that they want you to do. Generally speaking, after about two to four weeks of physical therapy, you should start to see some improvements. If you don't, that's the point where they may want to get some imaging studies. I don't image people who, you know, just have acute back pain as long as they don't have weakness on exam. Don't go jump to an MRI or even an X-ray unless there's certain other warning signs. Uh, so don't don't expect that from your physician every time. There may may not be a good reason to get that just yet. Uh, and then a specialist if you can't you know address that, and if you're having persistent pain beyond about six weeks is might be a good idea. But uh, moderation this weekend as you uh, get out there, and maybe uh, you know you're if you're like me and you're 52, you're not 18 anymore. So just keep that in mind, particularly after you've eaten four. Uh, servings of turkey to get that tryptophan dose. So, uh, uh, and another thing that I wanted to mention too is, um, you know, keep in mind it's always a good idea, particularly if you have extended family, and uh, to go ahead and ask. I know it's a little bit late in the game, but ask about any allergies that somebody might have or develop. So, we have had some uh, unplanned um, uh, um, people that have some unplanned visits to the ER because they didn't know about certain allergies. Somebody might bring a dish in that has nuts, for instance, and they may have a nut allergy or milk allergy or others that might cause some problems. So keep that in mind, too, that uh, just let somebody know if you're going over to their house or some friends, hey, I've got this allergy. I know you're going to cook some great food. Uh, if you could, you know, just a heads up, I'm, I might be allergic to something that might cause some more problems. And uh, certainly don't want to visit to the ER on a holiday weekend like this coming up. Well, with that, I I hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving. And again, I would uh, look for some ways that you can be thankful and share those with other people. If you're thankful for somebody, for something that they've done, give them a call this week. That's a great time to remind them about that. And I know they would love to hear it. Certainly have lots of negative things that are out there in the world today. It's nice to inject a little bit of that thankfulness. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. 
Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and our podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.